Welcome to the Calvary Baltimore Sermon Podcast with our senior pastor, Josh Plantholt. Great to have you with us. Calvary meets in the Joppa Falston area north of Baltimore. If you're nearby, come join us. For all the details, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. And now, here's this week's teaching. Turn your attention this morning to the 10th chapter of Revelation. I'll be back. (laughs) We're preaching seven verses today, so I promised we were going to speed up, and here we are. Uh, Today's story is a really fascinating one. It's a story of a mighty angel coming down from heaven and placing one foot on the sea... And the other on the land. And I told my dad early this week uh, what I was preaching today. And he goes, oh boy, we better pray. <laughs> uh, this is just one of those texts you don't hear much on. Uh, and part of the reason why is because there's a lot of unanswered questions in it. Uh, so before we jump in, I, I want to frame. Uh, sometimes... I learned this from Jesus. (laughs) Sometimes before he told a story or got into a story, he would give you some understanding of it going in so you could read it better. A lot of times you'll notice Jesus gives the application to his story before he gives a story. Um, So today, I I think it's going to be helpful uh, if we tackle one of the big questions uh, heading into this. And that is, who is the mighty angel who places the foot on sea? And on land. And the reality is, we do not know the identity of this angel. We don't know. Uh, because God doesn't tell us. <laughs> uh, this section, verses uh, 1 through 7, however, is centered around this angel, this mighty angel. Uh, we do not know who the mighty angel is of today's story. However, I think there are some clues to point us in a direction. So, Many take this mighty angel as just that, a mighty angel. Uh, many pastors take that literally, angel literally, uh, and, and this that this just might be a, a mighty angel. But the difficulty with this view is, is, and as we read it, I hope you'll understand, is just how Christ-like this angel reads. Um, the description of this angel is very similar to the description of our Lord in Revelation chapter 1. So it seems very clearly, uh, even from my most literal brothers and sisters, uh, that this seems to be more than just an angel, uh, though it could be. Uh, This could be a newer, higher class of angel than we're familiar with. And listen, do you think God's told us every single detail about heaven? Absolutely not. There could be a whole new class of angel out there. We don't know anything about it. This certainly could be it uh, that we just haven't been told. Because guess what? You're not on a need-to-know basis about all things. Uh, so I don't think this could be an angel, but it could be. Uh, many take this to be Jesus. The difficulty with this is, is that when Jesus is in view in Revelation, it's made pretty obvious that it's Jesus. He's called a lion or a lamb or the root of David or people are bowing down and worshiping him. There's clues and titles there. So this doesn't seem to be Jesus either, though though it could be. It could. 
Um, but that didn't really fit well to me either. That being said, wh- whoever this angel is, uh, they are clearly connected to and associated with Jesus. Now, here's my thinking. And could I be wrong? Yes, I already told you I could be wrong. We don't know who this is. In my thinking, I believe this mighty angel to be the Holy Spirit is Jesus's spirit, the spirit of Jesus Christ. Um, Fun little exercise. I want us to read the first verse in the book of Revelation. And it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Whoever this angel is here today, it very clearly seems to be his angel. This seems to be Jesus' angel. This book opened with Jesus Christ... God the Father and Jesus's angel. Now, I argued, I asserted that this could be an angel. It absolutely could. But I believe it to be the Holy Spirit. Now, the the order being, the Father gave the revelation to the Son, the Son to to, uh, the, the Spirit, and the Spirit to John the prophet, John the prophet to the people, the seven churches. And hasn't this been the model all through Scripture? The Father gives things to the Son, the Son to the Spirit, the Spirit to the, to the leaders, the, the, the apostles, the prophets, the apostles' prophets to the people. And this seems to be the model in Revelation chapter 5 through 10. In Revelation 5, who has the scroll? The Father. Who is worthy to take the scroll? You remember the great question we saw? And who was found worthy? Jesus Christ. The Father gives the scroll to Jesus. And then, and then, and then here we are in chapter 10, and this angel gives the scroll to John. Just by the structure, the, the, it makes sense that this angel, and the Greek word for angel here means messenger. That's all this means is messenger. It makes sense structurally that this messenger would be the Holy Spirit. And could I be wrong? Sure. But as we read today's passage, I think this becomes a strong contender, and I wanted to let you guys know where I'm coming from as we dive in here. Uh, verse 1, verse 1. <clears throat> then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud. At a base level, uh, this cloud represents God's glory. This angel, whoever it is, comes from God's glory. Thinking of the Old Testament here, the spirit is often likened to What? A cloud, the glory cloud that filled the temple and the tabernacle. And then it goes on to say, with a rainbow over his head. The last time we saw the rainbow in Revelation was in chapter 4. And who was it wrapped around? The Father. And then it said that the Son was next to the Father. So it's wrapped around the Father and the Son. And the angel, this angel comes from the glory, the presence of God, specifically from the throne. Then it says, and his face was like the sun. Jesus' face was radiant in chapter 1. So here this angel shares a likeness to Jesus' face. And then it says, and this is the big one to me, and his legs like pillars of fire. And Jesus' feet in chapter 1 were like burnished heated bronze, almost like a red bronze from being placed on coal. So the legs are connected to Jesus' likeness too. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, and specifically the Exodus story, the pillar of fire was a visual representation of who? The Holy Spirit, leading God's people through the wilderness. And it was this pillar that descended into the tabernacle. So again, this could be a strong angel. This could be Jesus himself. This, This could be the Holy Spirit. That's where I lean. But 
uh, th- this is the, the the angle that we're coming from here. And, and if, if Jesus appeared to John in chapter one in symbolic imagery, doesn't it make sense that the Holy Spirit, if he were to take a bodily form, would take on the symbolic form of both Jesus and the tabernacle? I think so, but either way, verse two. And he had a little scroll open in his hand. Aha! We've been waiting five chapters to see what this gonna happen to this scroll, and it's finally opened. Uh, this little scroll isn't describing a different scroll. Some people think they're two different scrolls. Nope, same scroll. Uh, but the scroll is open with something written in it. This is the same scroll that Jesus opened those seven seals for. So now the scroll is open and is in the hand of the mighty angel. So this scroll message is moved from the Father to the Son, to this angel, and soon to John. And John's going to do what with it? Give it to the, eat it and give it to the church. Okay, so uh, we're seeing that same line here. Now, this is what's so interesting to me. We're going to keep reading. And he set his right foot on the sea. And that's not in the sea, that's on the sea. That's he's, his foot's resting on top of. And his left foot on the land. We're going to come back to that. Verse 3, and called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. What's Jesus called in this book? The lion of the tribe of Judah. And here this angel has a voice like a lion. Again, we do not know who this is, but there's a deep connection here to who Jesus is. Verse 3, and called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. And when he called out, this is where it gets a little something else. The seven thunders sounded. What? Who's a seven? Who's a thunder? Who's, why are there seven of them? We, full transparency, no one knows what the thunders are. I have no idea what these thunders are. All I know is when this mighty angel who has a voice like a lion roars, seven thunders that seem to be people say something. Uh, And again, this is all pointing to Jesus because remember, when Jesus in chapter 6 opened the scroll, remember he opened each seal? Every time he broke a seal, especially the first four it's noted, one of the cherub responded. So here, now, the little angel, or the, the mighty angel, holds the scroll and roars, and now seven thunders respond. There's a direct connection to the, to the call and response of the action of this being to heaven. So anyways, verse 4. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. <laughs> you ever write so much you get hand cramps? I'd imagine John just scratching as fast as he can. I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So these seven thunders said something. John's about to write it and record it like everything else he's seeing and hearing. And a voice from heaven tells him not to. So... The reason I don't know what the seven thunders are is because God didn't tell us. He did not tell the church what the seven thunders are. A voice from heaven uh, asked that their message would be sealed up. And this is similar to a passage in Daniel, Daniel 12, verse 4, where God told Daniel to record a prophecy and then seal it up until, quote, the time of the end, unquote. There here, here, John... 
interestingly, unlike Daniel, isn't even supposed to write it down. Now, I may not know what the thunders are, but I believe I know why we are to know what we're not supposed to know. <laughs> and just think about it. Who is this? Who's the recipient of this, of this book, this work? The church. We are. And there was something that John thought we should know. But then a voice from heaven essentially says, no. <laughs> now, this is where little life experiences come in handy here. Uh, so I'm a father. I love being a dad. It's awesome. And as a father, and I think all dads and moms can resonate with this, don't you know how to get your kid interested in something? <laughs> Tell them they're not supposed to know what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a secret. I want to know it. What is it? If you are a parent and you are having a private conversation, your kid is trying to listen. Now, for example, I, my, my five-year-old Nathan. When I first introduced Nathan to sushi, I told him, you know, buddy, this is more adult food. This is big boy stuff. You probably won't like it. To him, challenge accepted. <laughs> He wanted to be big just like that. And I'm proud to say raw salmon is one of his favorite foods on earth. <laughs> well, here we are in Revelation 10, and God is telling us that there's a message to the church, but it's a secret. <laughs> now, as, right, now, as God's children, don't you think our Heavenly Father knows what this does to us? <laughs> I want to know the secret. Dad, 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 what's a thunder? Right? Why are there seven of them? Now, there's a reason God tells us there's a message, but then says you're not allowed to know the message. To A, make us want to know what's happening, and B, want to know why we can't know it. And now, verses 5 through 7, God is going to tell us why we don't need to know it. This information of a secret is to build in us an anticipation. We're supposed to be like little kids and go, well, I want to know why. And now God is going to tell us, well, here's why you don't need to know the secret. Why it is sealed up. So we're to come into verse 5 and 6 with such an urgency and a childlike wonder here. Uh, verse 5. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. Notice he swears, he, he, he swears by heaven and the land and the sea. He's got a foot on each and a hand on one. So he, he's declaring it there. And then what does he say? That there would be no more delay. The angel with his foot on land, his foot on sea, and right hand in the air is making an oath to God and says that there would be no more delay. Whatever these thunders said, God or someone under God's authority, so this is God's word, so God, uh, has called from heaven and said, no, don't write it. And the reason why, there is no more delay. 
I believe that as we have seven seals and seven trumpets and soon seven bowls, my thinking is that there was going to be seven thunders. Seven new things that were supposed to occur, but God stops it. And says that there would be no more delay. The seven seals have been opened and the scroll is to be read. It's almost as if more wrath was about to be poured out and God said, no, it's time. Verse 7. But that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. So all the mysteries, it's time for it to be fulfilled. Just as he announced to his servants, the prophets, we are done our reading. God doesn't want seven thunder, uh, want seven thunders before the seventh trumpet sounded. The time to digest and understand the open scroll is upon us. There will be no more delay. And there come times, have you noticed? In your life, you'll have seasons where you're praying to God, God, I need a miracle. God, I need you. And he seems so quiet. And then he'll act and it's all at once. (laughs) I can't keep up here. Uh, And here it's, we've had so many things happening and now God says, done, we're done, we're ready. And I think there's also, um, I think this is peeking back to chapter six. Remember when we saw the blood of the martyrs, the martyrs underneath the altar and they said, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? And he says, wait, wait just a little longer, essentially while I bring more while I add to the church. And now it's almost as if God says, time's up. (laughs) We need to change some things here. There will be no more delay. But that'll be for next week when we read it till we're done our text. Um, I have a singular topic today. It's a miracle. I I normally have a bunch. We have one. I want to talk to you today about dominion. Not a, not a sermon you typically hear outside of a Pentecostal church, but here we go. Dominion. Verse 2 says, He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Why does the mighty angel place his right foot on the land and his left foot on the sea? Biblically, remember, this book was seminoed to John. That word in the Greek literally means symboled. We should be looking for symbols. And so the, the, there are 65 books leading up to the book of Revelation. It's almost for 65 books for 2,000 years, God was building a new language and pictures and symbols and trees mean something and waters mean something and the Jordan means something and leprosy means something and, 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 and bondage means something and exodus means something. And God has been building, developing a language and here we see that there's a language problem problem here that we're missing. And it's very easily understood when we look at the biblical language. Placing a foot on something in the Bible is a sign of mastery or dominion over it. I'll prove it to you. You ready? Has anyone ever read the book of Ruth? And then Boaz is ready to, to, to I don't want to say purchase Ruth, but be, you know, take her in. And there's this really strange portion where he gives someone his sandal. You know what I'm talking about? And you read that and go, 
Why does he need a sandal? Well, a property transaction took place by exchanging sandals back then. And if, again, when you read it at first, it seems weird. But if you think about it, if walking or putting your feet on something signifies dominion or rule, doesn't it make sense to exchange sandals since the sandal that walked the property represents the land itself? This is the owner of the land that I've been walking on. You see it? Psalm 8, 6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. God is in charge. Isaiah 66, 1 says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So to have dominion over something is to have rule or, or mastery over it. And here this mighty angel places his foot on land and sea. This mighty angel has dominion over the whole earth. So whoever this mighty angel is, they at the very least represent God and his kingdom's dominion over the whole earth. Today's text to me is all about dominion and time, which we already talked about. Now, I want to talk about dominion from a few angles here. You thought you were getting away with one point. I snuck in two. Uh, First, isn't it true that evil men claim dominion? Caesar claims dominion. Here's a, here's a tip here. Whenever you're reading the Bible, you have to remember this wasn't written to 21st century Americans. <laughs> this was written in a particular time, in a particular context, amongst particular people, under among particular economies and uh, social structures and tyrants. Uh, and this book was written in the first century within the Roman Empire. And this text would have hit the first century church in such a profound way. A lot of you may not know this. I love archaeology. I love it. I could watch Indiana Jones every weekend. That's just, it's in me. If only they all carried a whip. Uh, well, <laughs> There was an archaeological dig not too long ago in the city of Aphrodisia. That's where we get that word, uh, Aphrodisia. Uh, uh, it's the goddess of love. It was the city to the goddess of love. And it was, uh, and at this dig in the city of Asia Minor. It's in the Asia Minor, exactly where the seven letters to the churches were. The archaeologists pulled up a piece of stucco relief from the first century. Uh, what, what that is, imagine a piece of dimensional art on a type of stucco that would hang on a wall or, or on, a, on a Roman pillar somewhere, and it would have, you know, a, a gargoyle or Caesar's sword on it, and it would be three-dimensional. Well, they dug up it, uh, right, right amongst the seven churches. There was a relief of Caesar, the Roman emperor, and on this relief, they found Caesar with his right foot on land. And in his right hand, he held all the bounty of the world. And on his left side, his left foot was on the sea. And in his left hand, he held an oar. He was master over all of ships and economy and water. And the point of this art was to the Roman people at this time, when the book of Revelation was written, Caesar was considered Lord of land and sea. He had complete dominion over everything. The Roman Empire was under his control and it ate from his bounty and it flourished and bent to the might of Caesar's will. And here we are in Revelation 10 and we have a very similar image. The difference is, 
Is Caesar the one with his foot on land and sea? (laughs) John is showing who's actually in charge, and it's not Caesar. It's God. And whether this mighty angel is indeed the Holy Spirit or not, this is such a powerful message to the church. That every time God's people gather, no matter where in the world we gather, whether we're here or in China or on an oil barge or on a boat somewhere, that where God's people who are filled with God's Spirit, wherever we gather in Christ, they, not Caesar, have dominion over the world and its present darkness. Paul talks about this at the end of the book of Romans, Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. God's peace has dominion over Satan's wrath, Paul just said. And you know, Paul was right. The principalities and powers over darkness that controlled Rome would eventually come crumbling before the might of God as he operated amongst who? The church. He didn't have to hit Rome with hailstones and turn their water to blood. He just raised up people like us. And we overcame the might of Rome itself. Jesus said in Luke 24, 49, Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The early church needed to know, as we need to know, that where the Spirit of God falls like a pillar of fire in the wilderness, like the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, like in our own lives, where the Spirit of God dwells, there is power. And dominion over darkness. 2 Corinthians 10.3 for, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Paul is talking about spiritual things. The early church needed to know, like we need to know, that where the Spirit of God resides, there is power. Did you know that about yourself? Because there's a whole lot of victimhood in our culture right now. It's, it's a victimhood Olympics that's happening. We're all trying to get first in how suffering we are. It's antithetical to the gospel. You are more than conquerors in Christ. Our Lord. We have power to destroy strongholds. Paul, The Bible is very clear on this, that the kingdom of God holds dominion over anything Satan or Caesar or anyone else in this world has. And us, the church, we are in that kingdom. How did Jesus open up the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 5. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom sermon. It's how we enter into the kingdom of God, and you are in that kingdom through faith. We, John 3, have been born again into it. You're a new citizen of a new country with a new power. And then have entered into that kingdom, the kingdom of God. As Paul said, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Christians are to be a people of the word, are we not? I mean, I talk about it every every Sunday. I know, Josh, read your Bible. (laughs) 
We are to know our Bibles. We are to study our Bibles. We are to live according to our Bibles. But the kingdom of God does not just consist in talk, but also in power. There is a deeply spiritual aspect to the Christian life. Our being in the kingdom of God does not amount to anything. Uh, There is real power. It says in the prayers of the church. You know, we, we, you, you think, you ever sometimes feel like, is this prayer doing anything? God, we gather again on a Sunday. God, you need to do something here. And what Paul is telling us, oh yes, God is moving. He is moving. Because all we do not just consist in words, but in power. There is a real power in the prayers of the church. The prayers of a righteous man availeth much. There is real power in our worship. There's real power in communion, in unity. So first, God is showing the early church us that the Roman Empire, the New World Order, the great reset figureheads, which we keep seeing all about now, they do not and have not been given dominion over anything. God has it. God and his kingdom has it. His kingdom holds mastery over both land and sea. The earth, Matthew 5, 35, is God's footstool. And we are not to drown in a swamp of despondency. We are to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, it says. That God is greater than any man or any kingdom. He has not lost control at all, loved ones. <laughs> now, secondly... We're done talking about men. Let's talk about Satan. Doesn't Satan claim dominion? Not just Caesar and evil men, but Satan wants and claims dominion. I I am so moved when when, when Jesus tells to Peter, Peter, Satan sought to sift you like wheat. That word in Greek means he demanded Peter and expected to receive him. He claimed mastery, dominion over Peter's life, an apostle. You don't think he's done that with you? (laughs) And God said, nope, mine. He's mine. God is showing us that he is Lord and has mastery over land and sea first. Because if we were to read Revelation in order, if we were to take this whole book as one big meal... (laughs) What we're going to see is that Satan next is going to claim land and sea. In Revelation 12, 12, it says, Therefore rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Satan wants dominion. And he seeks to gain control over the earth, and not with with oaths and appeals to God, as we saw in chapter 10, but with great wrath. But then later in chapter 13, Satan claims dominion first over the sea. What does Satan conjure up out of the sea? Does anyone know? A sea beast to blaspheme and kill God's people. He claims dominion over the sea first. And then next, later in chapter 13, Satan then claims dominion over the land by conjuring what out of the land? Does anyone remember? It's the same answer as the first one. A beast. He calls a beast to rise out of the land. And then later, the beast, the beast is going to rise up and build a city. 
Romans 18, 18, or Revelation 18, 18, that has dominion, quote, has dominion over the kings of the earth, unquote. Before, but before Satan does this, we are to remember what came first. We are to remember Acts chapter 10, and this is so important for us to know. That no matter how much wrath or chaos or evil Satan brings into this world, no matter how much control or in the driver's seat he appears to be, Satan has never and will never and forever be on a leash. He is on a leash and will never be in charge. Satan may, you know, what what did we read in Genesis chapter 3? He will bruise your heel. Well, it's a serpent. It's probably a bite. But he will what? Crush your head. What do you think that crush is if the heel's being bitten? The foot. (laughs) It's the foot. God won. Satan has tried and he has failed. He took his shot and he missed. Remember we saw that he tried to have a coop in heaven. He tried to overthrow heaven. Failed. Third of the angels cast out with him. And at the cross, uh, Luther calls it the, uh, the devil's mousetrap. He thought he was getting cheese by killing the Son of God. Nope, lost again. And in the end, he's going to try to take the whole world with him. And he's going to lose again. And then he will burn in hell forever with fire. God won and is on the throne. He holds the keys. God has dominion. I love the story of the feeding of the 5,000 within this context. Um, I'm going to read it to you. Uh, now the day began to, to wear away, and the 12 came and said to him, send the crowds away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provision, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. Isn't that great? Jesus, we don't have any food. You need to feed all these thousands of people. And Jesus goes, okay, you do it. And they said, we got five loaves and two fish, Jesus. I mean, this we got enough for us, but not everyone else, God. Unless we're here to go and buy food for all these people. Ha, ha, ha. Where are we going to get a million bucks, Jesus? For, uh, for there were about 5,000 men. That's men. We might have 15,000 people here. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them uh, sit, uh, had them all sit down and taking the loaves and fish and the two, uh, the, the loaves and the two fish, he looked up into heaven and notice we're now in heaven, heaven and said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set them before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. You could have made pesto with that bread anyways. But (laughs) Jesus took what? Elements of both the land and the sea. And he made as much of it as he wanted. Jesus had dominion. It was Jesus' dominion over the world that what? He could both rebuke the storms and fear and amazement they said to one another. He he rebukes the wind and the waves and even then they obey him. He rebukes and calms the storms. But he doesn't only have mastery over the sea, he has mastery over the fig tree. Remember he curses that fig tree and it withers and dies and Peter goes, Lord, look what you did. And he goes, Peter, you could say to that mountain be tossed into the sea. Why? Because he had dominion. 
Look at the story of the fig tree, Mark eleven twenty. And as they passed by in, uh, by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered, finally, and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Isn't this amazing? And he, Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, he's pointing to Temple Mount, by the way, be taken up and thrown into the sea, land and sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. The Father gave dominion to the Son. Now what is the Son doing here? He's giving the dominion to his church. How is this going to come? Through the Holy Spirit in just a few weeks. In Romans 8.11, Paul says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Just because God has filled His people with His Spirit and has given us tremendous power over the darkness, that does not mean God gives us everything we want now, does it? Hmm. <laughs> It's appointed that all men should die. The Bible says, just because God has given us dominion and tremendous power and answered prayer and spiritual gifts, does that mean we're not going to face any trouble? Does that mean we're not going to face persecution? Did, 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 did 11 of the apostles die because they lacked faith? <laughs> no. <laughs> Was Jesus homeless because he lacked faith or what didn't believe enough? No. No. Just because we're in the kingdom of God and have power doesn't mean we have unending lottery tickets. What I can tell you, though, is if your faith is in Jesus Christ, though you are not Lord and King, you are the child of him. And your heavenly Father ultimately is in control. And he may, let, he may let Satan wreak havoc for a time, but it is short-lived. <laughs> and so if we can gather anything from today's text. You know, something just hit me that's never hit me before in my whole life, and I'm going to share it. Do you notice the tyranny of Pharaoh ended the second they crossed over the waters? He tried to pursue him, them, and God said no. That's a picture of death. The second we cross over to the other side, there is not one more ounce of tyranny left in your life. <laughs> I just got that. Thank you, God. So if we gather anything from today's text, it's that God is sovereign. And he's Lord. And he has dominion over the heavens and the earth. And he has dominion over the sea and the land. And we are his children. And, and, and God loves his children. And like we read in today's text, there's going to come a time in the history of humanity where God will essentially say, enough. No more delay. <laughs> and this will, not, will lead not only to the final elimination of Satan and evil government and evil cities and sin forever, but this will lead to eternal joy and peace for his people. Pharaoh can't chase you to the other side. <laughs> and this is how we, we, we close, family. I, I want to read to you Romans chapter 8. 
Romans chapter 8 may be the greatest chapter in the Bible. And some people really get upset when they hear stuff like that. But if someone had an hour left to live, would you pick any portion of scripture you want? Would, would you go to Chronicles and start reading them lists? No, you'd go to John 3. You'd, you'd pick things that have a different emphasis. And, and Re, Re, Romans chapter 8 is called the great 8. It may be the most impactful, jam-packed passage of scripture. And, um, but one of the things people miss about Romans chapter 8 is this beautiful little word called context. That much of Romans chapter 8 is actually about suffering and trials and dealing with internal and external griefs. Uh, and so Paul's building this case and then Paul closes the chapter out in this whole section when you look at the structure of Romans with this great crescendo and praise. And it starts at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, you know it, who can be against us? Isn't that great? That's a coffee mug quote. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also uh, with him graciously give us all things? There's another one. If Paul is, is talking context, if Paul is talking to a bunch of people who are suffering, how can God also, how can Paul also call God gracious who gives to us all things? Isn't that an interesting tension there? And then, Paul's going to take it a step further, and he's going to talk about how badly they're treated. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Amen. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Paul lays out how much God gives his people and provides for them, and now is talking about how much is taken from Christians. Again, belonging to God, having dominion, being filled with the power of God does not exempt you from having to deal with evil people and difficult circumstances. But what Paul is telling us in the strongest terms is that even if God allows us to be slandered and abused, and I know no one in here has been talked about poorly before, but even if you've been slandered and abused, this does not mean God has abandoned you. No matter what earthly court says about you, God has dominion over our souls. And we have been justified by the highest court. His court is above all courts. But there was a time, that there are times where it appears that Satan has dominion, that he has the upper hand, that he is winning. But it's not true. Underneath and above all earthly circumstances is the spiritual reality that God is the one who is on the throne. And it is not our job to figure it out. It is not our job to know the meaning of the thunders. We don't need to know them because he knows them. We don't need to know God's plan. We just need to trust him that he knows his plan. (laughs) Paul goes on to say, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. All those things can happen to you as a child of God. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You be killed for your faith as one of God's most precious children. 
That's no indication of where you stand before God Almighty. What the mob says about you. Who cares what the mob thinks? Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How's that relationship held together? Is it your love for him? (laughs) His love for you. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, there's Caesar, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now the question is, why? Why, Paul? Why can we never be separated? Because God is on the throne. God has dominion over the earth. God has dominion over our souls. God has dominion. Period. No matter what storm beats against the kingdom of God, it's built on the rock. It's built on the cornerstone. And no matter what Satan or evil people or rain or hail or flood or or wave or gale hurls against that house, it will stand. It cannot fall. And what Paul is trying to impress upon the church in Rome here, and what Jesus is revealing to us in the book of Revelation, is that no matter what rises up against God's people, ultimately, the judge above all judges, the king above all kings, the Lord above all lords, he is in charge. Satan's about to make all of the claims God just does here. But he's a liar. God is going to get his people home no matter how much Satan rages. And Satan cannot and he will not win because why? Why can't Satan win? Because he's already lost. He already lost the battle for your souls on Calvary 2,000 years ago. And for the church, for us, what did Jesus tell Peter? They were standing in Caesarea Philippi. They were standing at something called the gates of hell. They used to throw children into that pit as human sacrifices. And God turns to Peter and says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. <laughs> and why? Why? Because God has the dominion. He has the mastery. The rule over all things. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask that you would be with us today. We ask that you would strengthen us today. God, (laughs) you have a scripture you're bringing to mind that the joy of the Lord is our strength. How do we have joy in you, God? It's by knowing who you are. Help us to know who you are. Help us to know you and see you as you are. Help us to read your word and believe it. (laughs) God, be with us in all things and strengthen us in all things. And God, no matter what wind or wave or gale beats against your church, it will not overcome. Fill us with this confidence. God, as Satan claims dominion over our lives and he demands us and expects to receive it, God, remind us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We are spoken for through faith. 
And God, we, we, we do ask that anyone in here who, who needs power, that you may pour their, your, your spirit upon them in a profound and a mighty, fresh way. Help them to understand that we are just not a people of the book. We are a people of the book and power. Of word and power. And so God, we ask that you would start transforming in a a fresh, fresh way today. And God, we ask that anyone in here that does not know you, that they would come to Christ and pray with our prayer people. And and if there are those here who need encouragement, do not let them leave here today without seeking encouragement. Let them love you enough to be honest about their struggle. We are your gift to each other, God. Let us be grateful and use it. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence. And send us out in power. Thank you for your dominion. In Jesus' name, all who agreed said, amen. Thanks for joining us for today's message from Calvary Baltimore. Please keep in touch. Send us an email with your questions, prayer requests, or just to say hi. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. If you'd like to donate to support the work God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. And if you're in the area, stop by on a Sunday morning. For directions and service times, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. Finally, if you're unable to come see us in person, we also live stream on our website and on our Facebook page. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Until next time, keep drawing closer to God through the reading of His Word. And join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore Sermon Podcast.